This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, professors. This is Toby Baton, and I am a senior majoring in MCA at Clark University. Recommended for you this week is the film Columbus from 2017, made in the United States and directed by Kogonada. The film stars John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson, and I'm recommending this film for you because it was the first film I watched as an undergrad student that demonstrated that with cinematography, sometimes less is more. The film is simple yet very profound and has since given me a style to strive toward as a filmmaker. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome, welcome, welcome to RFU. I'm Soren Sorensen. I'm Rock Sommer. And I'm Hugh S. Mannon. Today we are talking about Columbus. Columbus is a 2017 American drama film written, directed, and edited by Kogonada in his feature directorial debut, So Says Wikipedia. This film was suggested by Toby Paton, who's a senior majoring in MCA at Clark University. And now for some summary, Dr. Hugh S. Mannon. Thank you. I, I thought I would begin by uh, talking about the characters, and there are uh, a number of them, and it's a fixed set, and there's not a lot of variation in these characters through the film, um, and it's important to know who they are. So let me just go one by one. Uh, first off, Jay Young Lee, a famous Korean architect, collapses while looking at a building in Columbus, Columbus, Indiana, that is. His assistant, Eleanor, played by Parker Posey, is nearby and rushes over. He's in stable condition, but not enough to put uh, on a plane back to Korea, where he came from. We never actually see Jay Young Lee's face in the film. He's sort of a structuring absence to the film. The key character, uh, or, the, or one of the two key characters, I would say, Casey, who's 19 or 20, is a high school grad who seems to have taken a gap year and professes to be quite content living in Columbus. Casey's mother works in a cardboard box manufacturing plant. The two of them collect glass paperweights and peel a lot of vegetables. Gabe is a grad student working with Casey in the library. Uh, he's played by Rory Culkin, who I think I've seen in like Castle Rock uh, and Waco, uh, a couple Netflix or streaming series. Uh, Gabe has a tendency to what I'm going to call grad-splain. He's a grad <laughs> student. He likes to explain things. Jin, uh, who's probably in his mid-40s, I'm guessing, uh, is a translator who is Lee's only son, uh, comes to his bedside. He's played by John Cho, who has been in many films and TV shows. Most notably, he plays Harold in Harold and Kumar Go to, Go to White Castle. And those are the main characters. There's a few ancillary characters that we could probably talk about in the context of our discussion. Rocks, do you want to tell us about the overall plot of the film? So this is like a film essentially about both Casey and Jen and where they are at in their lives and where they are headed and what sort of choices they'll make about their professional lives, about their family life in relation to their past uh, and their very uh, weighted relationships with their respective parents. Jen to his father, who's a famed architectural scholar and now very sick. And Casey, who is a bit adrift and isn't sure if she wants to go to college, claims she doesn't want to leave Columbus. She loves it here. But we come to learn through her discussions with Jen that she's, in fact, perhaps most emotionally tied to this place 
due to being the primary caretaker at home. What happens over the course of the film is Jin and Casey run into each other, hang out, sit in front of various architectural locations around Columbus, Indiana, and talk about their lives. Had I read the plot summary of this film before I watched it, I would have thought this actually is not my kind of film and it's probably not that captivating. And I could, I, I would not have been more wrong because how this actually plays out over the two or so hours is extremely compelling. You deeply care for these characters. Yeah. It's partly because the acting's good. It's partly because the characterization's good. But this film gives you a lot of space to sort of settle into the rhythms of this relationship as it develops between Casey and Jen. And, you know, I, I think by the end of the film, it's, you know, you're just deeply moved by what's going on. And it also makes like a really pretty heavy intellectual point. I think about, frankly, about how this architecture did bring these two characters <laughs> together. I mean, it's a really strange film because the third character, I mean, if you want to talk about Casey and Jen as the two primaries, the third character character is architecture itself, which yeah. is a really strange approach. Like modernist, postmodernist. Yep. American architecture specifically, of, like of the Midwest. Yeah. And can I say uh, just quick before we, you know, we're going to go off in a lot of different directions. But, you know, I lived in not really the Midwest, but the sort of southern Midwest for eight years. I lived in a mid-century modern home in Oklahoma. Tulsa is full of this sort of architecture. Bartlesville, Oklahoma, which is just a nowheresville sort of town. Sorry if you live in Bartlesville. But um, it has the only, I think, one of the only two Frank Lloyd Wright high-rise buildings in the country. These little islands of modernist architecture, I think, exist all over the Midwest, partly because at the exact moment when those towns were booming, high modernist architecture was sort of in vogue. And I think it's just because, you know, as waves of money sort of passed through the country, the Midwest was the last to kind of benefit from that. So you see towns like Columbus, Indiana, scattered all over the place in the Midwest. And it's a pretty fascinating and completely, I think, underappreciated phenomenon. I've spent uh, a mere three years of my adult life uh, and none of my childhood uh, living in the Midwest. And while uh, the mid to generalize from that limited experience, the Midwest and I are not good fits socially and culturally in the sense of human relations, the architecture and the spaces are just gorgeous. And so some of my best friends in Grand Rapids, Michigan, were the mid-century modern houses in my neighborhood, (laughs) including the Frank Lloyd Wright right around the corner from my house that I would walk around and visit. And this film does beautiful, gives beautiful treatment to living in such a city and a real sense of like the human like relations uh, we can have with physical spaces and what sort of conversations and I don't know, emotional lives they can facilitate, if not guaranteed. One of one of what you're referring to, Hugh, is one of Jen and Casey's uh, ongoing debates or conversations and she doesn't come down hard on the opposing side but this question of whether architecture can heal uh, and he thinks it's a ridiculous romantic notion of architects and architectural scholars like his father and she's not saying for sure that she thinks it can but she's sharing with him what it's been like to live in Columbus Indiana with these buildings and have them there as companions through uh, some of the toughest times of her life. Yeah. When we talk, we always talk about films having 
the location is a, is a third character, or a, you know, it, its own character. And it's always, it's seemingly always like it's Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or something like that. And um, for it to be Columbus, Indiana um, was, was fascinating. And obviously you can't discuss this film without discussing architecture on some level. Um, I listened to an interview with Koganada um, about the um, the process of making the film. And, and he's very much a formalist. Um, he has these great video essays on his website about Brisson and, and Hitchcock and Kubrick and all this, and, and Wes Anderson and stuff. But this is his first feature film. Um, but you supposedly, or, or, or according to him, I should I should take him at his word probably, um, there was a there's a, some kind of like best architecture cities in the United States list um, a few years back. And it was the usual suspects, you know, New York and Chicago and these, you know, these, these big cities and stuff and buried in this list, you know, in the, in the top 10 of this list though, um, was this little nugget in, in Indiana, Columbus, Indiana. And so that was a place that he decided to visit and thought, well, yeah, this is the ideal location for a, for a film like this. And I, I, I think he was trying to do something with the, the seeming coldness of those spaces, but the warmth of what the Midwest kind of social milieu is and, 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 but also the messiness of, um, of, of family dynamics and relationship dynamics, um, coupled with the cleanness and beauty of these, of these spaces, if that makes sense. Yeah. And one of my, you know, favorite things about this film is, you know, Casey starts showing Jen all her favorite buildings and she has them ranked. And he's like, why, why do you like this Irwin union bank? And she starts sort of repeating back to him, the tour guide speeches she had taken in uh and that she aspires to like lead herself and he's like no no are you moved intellectually by the facts or is there something about the building itself sorry what what are you doing what who are you (laughs) shut up i'm just trying to tell you about this building okay stop with the tour guide mode for a second i'm not in a mode you said this is one of your favorite buildings it is why It's one of the first modernist banks in the United States. No, no, that can't be it. Do you like this building intellectually because of all the facts? No. I'm also moved by it. Yes. Yes, tell me about that. What moves you? I thought you hated architecture. Yeah, I do. But I'm interested in what moves you, particularly about a building. And in a way, he plays, you know, despite uh, casting himself as opposed to his uh, professorial father, he is like modeling a different pedagogy for her where he wants her to like think critically and speak from her heart and articulate her thoughts and her responses uh, rather than, you know, recite like rote, (laughs) like textbook uh, testing like materials. Uh, and you mentioned Koganada's, uh, video essays. And I'll say, I I assume this was by a filmmaker I wasn't familiar with. And then I go and Google, uh, him and I am very, like, I'm very familiar with his video essays. His, what is neorealism video essay, uh, is one that I regularly list as an example for my students to follow should they go the video essay route and it matches up perfectly with what Jin is teaching Casey like the method of like close looking and analysis uh and 
an affect as a form of knowledge because that's what Koganada does in his video essays. He does textual analysis and makes arguments like one would in a scholarly paper, but does so through visuals and through editing and through music choice. He's very good in his own work about showing rather than telling. I don't know. There's a parallel to the work that Jin is asking of Casey in a highly unpedantic way. Right. And, and I think like, you know, so on the one hand, clearly Jin is is performing the role of good, benevolent teacher to Casey. And I think that works out in a certain way for both of them. And then the question is, what role does Casey play for Jin? And it's much more complex. She teaches him something about the nothing. There's this constant discourse in this film about nothing. And, and it comes up because her friend Gabe is into studying marginalia. Uh, in books, so stuff that's written in the margins. And that's just, a, that's a very tiny sideline. It comes up in Act One. It's not mentioned that much again. Um, but that uh, Jin's father wrote something in the margins uh, of his own notes that said something like, much ado about nothing. And I'm generalizing, but like a lot of what he's getting at in his notes, which Jin translates for Casey, is that his father, before he had this lapsed into a coma, was concerned with the nothing. And so we see this image and it repeats in the film. And I don't know what specific building it is, but there are these two long cantilevered brick walls that sort of extend way out from their source. And they 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 look like they're going to come together in the middle, but there's a gap that separates mm. the two of them. And it almost looks magical. Like how are these how do two brick walls sort of suspend themselves in midair with this gap in the middle? And so it's it's as though she's teaching him something about that. And I and the only thing that I can point to as evidence for this is this amazing scene like midway through the film. So they're standing over the roof of the car. There's this space separating them. That's kind of like this void space. And one's on one side of the car. Uh, Jin's on the right hand side. Casey's on the left hand side. And Jin says, and they're talking about her mother and, you know, essentially like what exactly is the trauma that she's experienced in the past? And he's trying to get this out of her. And all of a sudden he says, your mother, did she do meth? So were you addicted to meth? No. Your mother? Did she do meth? What? <laughs> Sorry. That just sounds funny. F- funny how? Your mother? Did she do math? <laughs> what? You don't hear it? Hear what? Your mother? Did she do math? What? Your mother? Did she do math? I don't. Never mind. And she repeats this line back to him and she says it over and over and over again in this sort of mocking way. Like, your mother, did she do meth? Your mother, (laughs) did she do meth? And she says it over and over like five, seven times. And it's this phenomenon that's called semantic satiation. So that when you hear the same phrase repeated the same way, same way, same way, same way, same way, over and over again, ad nauseum. Um, it sort of, the signifiers lose their meaning and start to sound like nonsense. When she lashes out in this funny way by saying, you know, back at him, your mother, did she do meth? Over and over <laughs> and over again, she teaches him something. And I, I just think it's, a, it's an almost impossible point. Did your mother do meth? <laughs> that was even worse. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so she did. No, she did. But it was just because the shithead guy cheated on her. That's a real addiction, shitheads. There are spaces in the frame, there are spaces in this architecture, there are voids in this architecture, and there are voids between the characters, and um, uh, they're oftentimes sitting not on the same, not in a parallel line, or, you know, sort of perpendicular to each other, or they're on on different, you know, diagonals or something, and, you know, clearly this was something that's been, uh, you know, planned out really meticulously, which is sort of a throwaway thing to talk, you know, when you're talking about a film director generally, but um, I I find students are, are, um, are, are, prone to mentioning Wes Anderson whenever they're talking about symmetry or something being planned or, you know, that, that this is, this is meticulously designed or something. Whereas this film, you know, was the same thing to me, but it was as the opposite. It was like asymmetry or like you said, these voids in space. Um, but it was so meticulously planned out that it didn't, you know, nothing felt chaotic about it at all, even though they're dealing with these really kind of, you know, fraught topics of a parent and, and, um, you know, offspring relationships and drug abuse and, you know, near death and coma and all these, you know, and, and, uh, you know, at, at one point, um, you know, potential adultery and there's like all these different things kind of happening that are messy, but they're in these beautiful frames and in these closed frames and, uh, at, at, on some occasions, um, including that scene with Parker Posey, um, which is just shot into a mirror the whole time when, when they're, they're sort of hooking up briefly. Um, John Cho's character and, and, um, and Parker Posey's character. Related to what Casey offers Jin or what she teaches him it sort of links back up to a separate conversation she has with Gabe uh, uh, related to his marginalia and this question of attention versus interest. And the real question, according to him being, are we losing interest in the things that matter? And he suggests to her as both bookish people, words on a page, and then later like everyday life. And I think this film to a certain extent is adding cinema. I'm bookish, we're both bookish. So what he's saying is that when we talk about attention, we're biased toward reading. Like, I had this professor who used to go on and on about the idiocy of video games. He talked about how his son would play for hours and that he once tried playing with him, but found it completely dull after just a few minutes. Now, if this was reversed, if the son was talking about how his dad would read for hours and he once tried reading with him but found it boring after a few minutes, well, we would accuse the son of having a short attention span, right? But why don't we accuse the professor of having a short attention span? Because it's not about attention for him. It just seems idiotic. Yeah, but what if that's exactly the case for the son? See, what he's saying is that this boy is actually able to give hours of attention to a video game because it's interesting to him. Yeah, but that's because video games are designed for people with short attention spans. Yeah, see, that's what bookish people say. But no, what, what this guy is saying is it's, it's not a matter of attention but of interest. The professor doesn't have patience for the video game because he's not interested in that kind of experience. In the same way that the son might not be interested in books. And it's not that he doesn't have the ability to pay attention. Clearly he does. Like the professor, he's, he's able to pay attention for hours if he finds something interesting. So down with books, long live video games? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> what he's offering is a critique of a critique. But in its place, he identifies a different kind of crisis. Not the crisis of attention, but the crisis of interest. 
See, to talk about attention is its own kind of distraction. This relates directly to Koganada's What is Neorealism, where he shows what is cinema in 1953 for neorealists like uh, Vittorio De Sica and Americans like David Oselznik and their separate cuts of the same film. And this is not, this is on the neorealist side in that it's not about a plot, <laughs> I guess, which is like the point mm. of his video essay. And now that's like my, explains my poor summary of the plot of his film. Um, it's a hard plot to summarize. It's a hard yeah. plot to summarize, but this is a film that's perhaps about film and that meaning not necessarily plot. Uh, but I think it's the sort of everyday life component because Jin is constantly pushing Casey to tell her she could be doing so much more. Uh, yeah. You know, it's apparent to him, it's apparent that her like talents, her, her brilliance, her passion are sort of lost or wasted uh, in this very mundane life she's living. And her retort in, in one moment is like, there's more important than taking care of my mom. And I don't think right, it's necessarily yeah. that this film was saying family first uh, and that that's what she teaches him. That would be too simple. Like he doesn't develop a new relationship with his father that is more like Casey and her mother's. And there's a way that both are unhe unhealthy and fraught. But there is this question, what should one be doing with one's life? Uh, and should it be work, 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 school, school, school? And is there a way in her working her little casual library job, spending her time smoking cigarettes, looking at buildings, preparing, like teaching herself how to be a chef and make awesome dinners for her mom? Like, is she not living? Like, was Jin living in working really hard for a thankless job? Uh, in translation, like maybe he wasn't and maybe sitting here with his father is really uncomfortable and frustrating uh, and forcing him to confront like this troubled past and these big feelings. But maybe that's not in and of itself like a worthless endeavor. And yeah. it might not be resolved in him feeling peace when his father passes, but he'll at least as a result of her influence have sat with those feelings. Yep. Yeah. This is also about discussions that um, that we've had privately about orienting one's studies toward the goal of career uh, and the goal of making money versus the goal of thinking critically or you know or or living a full life. That one can live a full life absent you know a notable career as an architecture scholar, and one can also be miserable with a high paying job and in Seoul or you know wherever one is. I mean, she's she's in that point. I mentioned that she's uh, immediate post. Uh, college grad and she's sort of in this gap between you know what or me sorry immediate post high school grad and she's in this gap between high school and what she's going to do in terms of college right I think I've got that right yeah. and so it, it reminds me a lot though of of what I just described which is sort of like this weird zone after college and I can remember having you know these experiences after college where like I was just doing exactly kind of what Casey's doing like it wasn't looking at architecture because my town didn't have any architecture, but I would just take a camera out in the <laughs> woods for hours and just shoot photographs and set up shots and stuff. And I didn't even know what I was doing. I had no formal training in photography, nothing like that. But like in some ways that to me, th those uh, forays into the woods to just do whatever and, and frankly to do nothing. And this is again, like I think there's a perception that she's kind of like when she's staring at buildings on the hood of her car or whatever, late at night, that she's doing nothing, but that somehow that's much more real and kind of has a more weighty, weighty, um, 
you know, factor in her life and kind of in her being than anything you could educate, than anything you could do career wise, uh, I think is pretty profound. And of course, Jin is totally past that. You know, Jin's like mid 40s and kind of is on a career and kind of doing his thing. And of course, she's she's recalling for him the fact that, you know, this moment that I'm living that is so important to me right now where I can just go out and look at a building for hours at a time has completely passed you by. And I'm going to drag you back into it and kind of force <laughs> you to do it again. And I think that that's kind of like the magic of what goes. I mean, that's how I felt watching the film. You know, she's dragging yeah. me back into this experiential state where I'm staring at buildings and kind of having no real purpose whatsoever in doing that other than just sort of the pure aesthetic pleasure of soaking that up. You know, as a, as a filmmaker myself, who, who's only two, you know, works, major works have been about fathers and sons. Um, I, I could recall this, um, this documentary that is sadly, I think just streaming on YouTube. I guess that's not sad, but it's, it's too bad. It's not kind of been restored or something, but there's a 2003 film called My Architect um, by Louis Kahn, um, or I'm sorry, it's it's about Louis Kahn by his son, Nathaniel Kahn, um, and it was, it's about this really famous architect, um, and, and, but it's made through the illegitimate son's eyes, basically, and like, and like trying to sort of know his father after his passing, um, and it is, it's pretty devastating when I think when, when kids, when offspring, um, you know, consider their, their, their parents, often, oftentimes fathers in these, in these narratives, um, how they're, they're these giants in their careers and they've given so much to their fields and, and the world with these spaces, especially architects. Um, and, but they were maybe horrible parents. Um, and, and, and essentially this, this is this case where this person is trying to meditate or have a walkabout about his father's work, but realizing that he, he didn't have a dad because of this person's work and this person's philandering essentially. Um, so I, I, I was sort of terribly inspired by this when I first saw it in 2003 and it was Academy Award nominated. And I thought I was absolutely certain that you were going to drop, uh, and I know you've seen this cause you've mentioned it to me before. I thought you were going to drop, um, Nobody's business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Alan Berliner. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, Amazing. and that's and that's sort of different because the father. That's different than Columbus and and my architect in that in nobody's business. Alan Berliner is present with his father, and you know they're they're confronting each other in the frame. And and but it's it's very much. You're absolutely right, though. It's very much the same thing because the father sees no value in what the son is doing. You know, and I had that I had that issue with my father when I was making my father's Vietnam, which is that it wasn't adver- adversarial, but he didn't see. He didn't see the value in what I was doing, just like I probably wouldn't understand the value in what he did for his career. And and I think that's really precisely what's going on in this film, which is like different generations as well, you know, and and the way they express value. What is value, and and what and what's the point of, of spending time, you know, on, in a rat race or kind of on a treadmill, um, you know, you know, going through one's career, going through the steps one is supposed to go through, um, versus you know, being present with these spaces, with these amazing buildings in this town that no one's heard of in Indiana, and you can you can almost it's the Freudian slip of saying Columbus, Ohio, is just right on the tip of everybody's tongue. I mean, it's like the kind of it's the you know the redheaded stepchild of Columbus, Ohio, right? But it's in, instead it's this this architectural bastion and and this kind of incredible place that's that probably I would visit as a result of seeing this film. Um, and I think Coganata would 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 encourage us all to do so. Yeah, if you've ever been to Columbus, Ohio, it's the anti-Columbus, Ohio. No offense, Colum- Columbians <laughs> or whatever you're called, but yeah. So let me ask this, and I think this kind of with an eye on the clock, we we absolutely need to address the question of film form. 
um, and I'll just float this. Uh, I noticed this about 20 minutes in that it seemed like there were no moving camera shots whatsoever. And it's not entirely true because the shot where the, uh, the two of them, Casey and Jen connect over cigarettes uh, very yeah. early in the film is a track. <laughs> that's a long, unmotivated walk. Yeah, very, very. Yeah, it's, it's actually very, problem- that was a very strange shot. Problematically uh, tracking. But um, the camera <laughs> tracks them along this fence, but it's, a, it's an anomaly. And there's, I think, maybe two or three at most moving camera shots in the film and everything else is static. And so there was there a tilt up to that brick uh overpass that you mentioned I earlier. sure don't I sure don't think there was I, I down really to them don't. sitting below it no they just cut the yeah I think I so think it was just like because it, because then you'd see the way it was attached and I yeah. think it just went to the wide and it was like a different perspective but honestly you might be right you might be I, right. I, I, the only reason I say that I don't think that happened is because I, I I almost like was making a conscious effort to notice to see if there were any moving camera shots and really it's it's super austere and limited yeah yeah, the the one I noticed that tracking shot was my least favorite shot in the whole yeah. film. I mean, I I was like, why are they walking? It, it actually doesn't fit the film like, very well. Yeah, because yeah, of this. But. So so why then? Why? I mean, I think there are easy glib answers that you could have to this, but like, why uh, insist on static shots? I wish I wish my students were more like this, which is, you know, being able to master cutting together stationary shots when everybody is telling you with your phone and with your your devices to constantly be hand-holding yep. and, and stick it on a stabilizer and it's just like a Steadicam when you have no idea what you're doing, it multiplies the amateurism of, or the amateurishness of, of just running around and pointing the camera different places, you know, whether it's smooth, who cares? Like, it's like, what are you doing that for? And so that's, you know, you show like, you might show a clip from Michael Bay's transformers or one might I do, um, you know, as, as a, as an, the, the, an example of unmotivated camera movement. Um, and, and I found this particular tracking shot to be unmotivated camera movement, but Koganada clearly knows how to make, how to stitch together stationary shots. I think the glib answer is that these locations demand it. Um, and and that the, the the moving on them almost would have a feel of it being like an HGTV show, you know, when they tilt up and down, and you know, and, and it would cost a lot, you know, to have a, a techno crane or a you know to have a jib arm and to, and all this different time to kind of like move around these structures. Whereas why not just show them in all of their grandiosity and wide shots if you can if you can do that? And and I think as a low budget film, this cost well under a million dollars to make. So. It just occurred to me, and you saying that I didn't really think of this as I was wa- think of this as I was watching it. But honestly, like the, the shots don't move because the architecture doesn't move. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they're, and I, and I think it's fair because of the sort of formalist we know Koganada to be. Is there's a way that these buildings, for the most part, are variations on a rectangular brick shape they're also themselves of course steady and solid and grounded uh and so there's a way that one thing that not moving your camera does is calls attention to the frame itself and to those edges and those boundaries and so it's this very uh you know mid-century idea (laughs) of thinking about space you know much like pollock uh and other painters, Rothko thought about the painting, you know, the painted frame or the canvas and those boundaries and what it means to confine oneself to such a space. I think Koganada is asking himself or pursuing a similar endeavor with that simple rectangle 
of the film screen. Rox, you're absolutely spot on. But I guess the what the response is if if it wasn't if it wasn't um, practical and, and about the budget, these structures would lend themselves to certain kinds of camera moves. And yes, I wouldn't I wouldn't suggest you know um, pans and tilts necessarily like uh, pivot camera moves or fixed camera moves. Um, but these tracking shots, other than the one that I that I didn't love, um, you know, w- would be wonderful. Um, you know, for this kind of architecture, uh, possibly even drone shots, right? Which I, I'm sort of tired of. But um, so I could I could imagine there there him him being able to excel shooting this with tons of camera movement, but um, to Rox's point, it was much more um, like proscenium. You know, there, there was there was symmetry in the background. Oftentimes, even if even if it wasn't symmetrical, um, the way that we think of symmetry visually, it was symmetry because the entire structure was being featured or something. So you're actually showing the balance of the structure. And they have that discussion about the the church, I believe, where the cross is offset, and yet the the building has balance. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a different kind of symmetry, right? It's not the symmetry that we say, well, you have an apple on this side, so you have to have an apple on this side. There's different sorts of symmetry. But if, I mean, if I remember my like uh, undergrad like art history and architecture classes correctly, uh, there's something about like mid-century modern architecture and like Frank Lloyd Wright in particular is the like, most iconic example that experiencing his homes and his buildings wasn't about the movement through, right? Like sometimes it, it was actually kind of, um, you know, it was about being in this room or being mm. in that room or seeing from this room to that room, but not yeah. really about movement. Like, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and even and even the even even the the house where um where Casey lives with her mom, you can see through absolutely. into three different rooms. Yes. And so even though it's a small space, they've they've chosen a location where they've stacked the rooms in this beautiful way, and everything's just kind of accounted for, and and it's colored right. And you can see when when she gets into the shower, like you're seeing her from the kitchen. Like it's this kind of you know it's this beauty, and you're getting this depth that in somebody's home you, you're not used to getting you know it's, you, it's it's very thoughtful yeah this film is deeply and very specifically about that experience i mean there are numerous shots form again formalistically there are numerous shots in this film that do exactly what soren just described so it's it's a shot through a hallway to a different room and the action that we're supposed to be paying attention to is in that far room not in the near room and i just think it's a very different very architectural way of of you know developing mise-en-scene there's also a, a surprising way in which the film plays on that practice throughout. Oh man, I was about to say throughout the film. <laughs> the film like plays on our former experiences of space and architecture and seeing from room to room and getting vast views that show us so much. Very late in the film, Jin and Casey get drunk together and uh, he passes out in the car. She has a dance party, which I don't know about moving cameras, but it gets all wonky avant-garde for, for like good 20 seconds as she dances in the headlights. But the next morning, Eleanor played by Parker Posey shows up and tells Jin and says, Jin, why have you not been answering your phone? Uh, You need to get to the hospital. And he's waking up hungover and and halfway through the scene, we realize that Casey has spent the night in a separate piece of furniture. So it's not like they spent the night together, mm-hmm. um, but she's just off screen because of the framing. And so it yeah. ties back to this. We think we're being presented. This is a view of the room. Here's Jin mm-hmm. waking up 
hungover. He's talking to Eleanor. Oh, wait, no, Casey is there too. And it's it's the sort of it's so it's the sort of reveal. She's too yeah. near to see. Because there's a million ways yes. to stage that, but she's actually too close to us to be able yeah, to sort see of beside her. the camera. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's really important to point out that the the crucial sort of transition between act two and act three, this this point that happens that sort of nudges Casey in the direction of leaving town, um, not abandoning her mother, but certainly leaving her mother to sort of care for herself happens when it's it's stunning to me happens when Jin and Casey are standing there looking at the the open architecture of the cardboard box factory and she's able to discern by the way that her mother's friend responds to a phone call through these giant high modernist open windows that that a lie is being told and so she mm-hmm. knows yeah. by virtue of the architecture itself that something yes. is wrong with her mother's situation, be it, and, and it, it's very ambiguous. But we don't know what. It could be that she's sort of hooking up with some bad guy, which has been a problem in the past. It could be she's re- relapsed into drug use. We don't know what, but we absolutely know by virtue of that gaze through the glass across the way. So it's like the architecture giveth and taketh away <laughs> in some strange sense. And I just absolutely love that moment. I mean, it's pretty on the nose, but like the architecture begins the problem sort of develops the problem and in the end ends the problem and she leaves. Mm. What's interesting to me is there, this could have gone so much more melodramatic and we could have been, we could have learned sort of separately of Casey, one of those things that her mother has a new bad boyfriend or, you know, a drug problem yet again. And instead, all we know is that her, her, her mother's friend is trying to create space between them so that is trying to discourage Casey from calling all the time throughout her mother's shift, trying to discourage Casey from picking her up and, and instead offering her mother a ride home herself. And I mean, I think the most at face value explanation is that the people in Casey's life are trying to set her free. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like she, she is playing the role of the helicopter mom to her own mother and she need not, and it's time to let go. And that's, and, and that's hard. And, you know, that's hard for a mom to do to a kid. And it's hard for a kid who's like parenting her mom to do even more. So, you know, I don't know if this is kind of a, a tidy way to wrap things up or not, but I'll just interject this, that there are moments in the, in this film in a formalistic sense where we're denied the voice So there's these shots where we're about to get a dramatic verbal revelation of something. And at that exact moment, the camera cuts to the other side of the glass and we can't hear what's being said. So it happens in the car late in the film when Casey has a breakdown. It happens early in the film when she's about to confess something really important. And I think it also happens, frankly, in the scene in which her mother's friend is revealing something. We can't hear what's being said on that side of the pain either. So this ultimate icon of modernist design, the gigantic pane of glass is insulating in such a way that we can't hear what's being said at these critical moments. And I think it's just Koganada is utterly brilliant in making that decision to cut to the other side so that we can't hear the very thing that we want to hear. <laughs> Would we recommend this film? Yeah. Yes. Totally. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. 
these these they're getting a little these these uh yeah. these suggestions are getting we a little need, too good. I, <laughs> we, we went from <laughs> we went from we like need, Twilight and Cube, cube two. two. Yeah, we need two. Cube three maybe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Toby. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Toby. I cried at the end. I've been crying a lot lately. Recommended for you is the Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. Guess what other really crucial thing Koganata and I have in common? It's a film that we've both not seen. Titanic? Titanic. Well, <gasps> I guessed it? Oh, Titanic. wow. That, I can't believe it. <laughs> he and I have not... He, he freely admits, although sheepishly admits uh, in a video, that he's never seen Titanic, and I've never seen Titanic either. And, but you admit it not you, you what's the opposite of sheepishly confidently yeah you you admit yeah. it quite quite assuredly death yeah. glares for everyone i saw it twice in the theater <laughs> twice in the theater it was the first it was the first film it was the first film and possibly the only film i've seen seven times in the theater oh and that my. is only counting paid movie tickets i have now shown it to students and watched it in razzo and the like multiple oh times so, so look i mean oh my God. I, i'm not you guys I, it's a good movie it's a gigantic I saw it twice in the theater he's seen it zero times that's like it's exponentially huge, different it's just a rub it's a very different it's a rub in the screen faculty so like i'm you know and, and you, people have heard me say this too like i'm you know how people are like really into comparing alien and aliens like I'm all on board with Alien, and I couldn't give a shit about Aliens. Like I'm not a Cameron fan. I think that's what it boils I like down both, to. But I'm not much of a James Cameron fan either. Yeah. The yeah. only good movie he's made, guys. No, <laughs> Aliens is probably the only good movie he's made. <laughs> but but that's fine. That's fine. That's fine.